Good morning and welcome everybody one more time to Encounter Church. Welcome those of you guests with us. We are in part four of four of our series, All the Wrong Places. And in case you're just joining us, what we're doing in this series is just identifying and naming some of the wrong places to find our hope and our happiness and our, and our wholeness. We opened it up in part one of this series talking about fame, uh, big fame, tiny fame, fame like needing to get the credit in the office, at work, at home for every little thing that we've done. Uh, Part two, we talked about money and stuff. Last week, we talked about the wrong place of finding our hope and happiness in perfection. Remember that God is more glorified in our imperfections than than he is in our perfections. It's those areas that we fall short that he shines most clearly through. Today we're talking in part four about um, the wrong place of finding our hope and our happiness in comfort, in this easy life, in the good life. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to open it up with just a simple question, rhetorical question, no show of hands, you don't have to come forward, nothing like that, but just ask yourself this simple question that in life, am I chasing comfort or am I pursuing happiness? And there's a difference there. The the problem is that sometimes there's this overlap of this like Venn diagram where like comfort and happiness like intersect, even if it's just for a moment. And so we sort of like um, lay the two right on top of each other. Am I chasing comfort or pursuing happiness? Uh, Research has shown that eating comfort food, good food, Cheesecake Factory is going to make an appearance a little bit later on in this message, stick around. Good comfort food actually brings us a measurable level of satisfaction and even happiness. The problem is that researchers found that it actually lasts only seven seconds. After you're done eating the comfort food, it lasts seven seconds for all of the happiness to statistically just wane and even disappear. The problem, too, is that researchers also found that if they put a bag of carrots in front of somebody and they ate carrots, they would also find some level of happiness and satisfaction for seven seconds after the carrots are eaten. So it really doesn't have much to do with how good the food is. It's just eat. We like to just eat in general. But whatever the reason is, these two things are conflated just for a moment. There's this overlap between, between comfort and happiness. And so we think that happiness is going to come from just like more comfort. And I, to an extent, I get this. Me and my, and my nine-year-old kid, we asked the same question about whether or not we're going to like adapt a new pair of uh, clothes into our wardrobe. We just asked the same question, the same three-word question, is it comfortable? That's like our litmus as to whether or not some of you are like looking at me going, actually, that kind of explains quite a bit. <laughs> I, think I, I think I get it now. Is it, is it comfortable? Um, am I chasing comfort? And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem, though, is happiness and comfort aren't necessarily the same thing. And so what we're going to do throughout this time together is kind of tease some of these things apart uh, with the help of God's Word, with the help of James to figure out, figure out how in the world we can pursue happiness, uh, even if we're not all the time chasing comfort. A couple of areas that I've noticed, that you've helped me notice through our time together, of where we chase comfort at the expense of happiness the most. The first area is in relationships. Uh, A true depth of relationship is difficult. It's remarkably difficult. And throughout the last few years, I think it has gotten even harder. I was exiting church a little while ago. Last week, actually, someone came up to me and said, I'm in this new small group, and one of the things that I'm realizing is that relationships are like a muscle. And like any other muscle, when it's not exercised and stretched, 
it tends to atrophy. And she goes, I have not seen the bottom half of somebody's face in a long time. Now that I am, I'm recognizing just how badly this relationship muscle has atrophied. And so it's easy. What's comfortable when something is difficult is to like sink back and just to kind of do life in the absence of those relationships. Um, I think about uh, the last couple of years as a way of... <laughs> Uh, as a way of playing through probably one of the greatest experiments in comfort, maybe in human history. Because for a lot of us, we think, you know what? What it's going to take for me to be happy is to be comfortable. And if I could just spend all day in my sweatpants, if I could just spend all day on the couch, if I could just spend my life being able to start a movie and end the movie in the same setting, if I could, if I could not leave the house for any reason, that would be so comfortable. Surely, I would be happy. And then many of us, we got our wish. And it's like, hey, listen, the most heroic thing that you can do a couple years ago, right, is to lay on your couch and not leave for any reason. For as long as you can, just stay put. And it's like, where's my cape? I can do this. I was made for this. The cape in this example is actually just a blanket you pull over you. And did it lead to happiness? In the greatest experiment, I think, in human history on this level, I think the resounding answer is we learned a few things along the way. Happiness did not automatically come from this remarkably comfortable life. Um, we mentioned relationships are difficult. Um, it's easy for us to sink back into comfort in relationships and just sort of like end them before they even start. It's hard to develop a meaningful relationship. It's comfortable not to be cautious over that. Uh, relationships are the first one. The second area, the danger of leading a comfortable life. Number one, we miss out on relationships. Number two, the danger of the comfortable life is in our identity, is in my identity. You know, I think of, uh, I think of uh, adapting and living into your identity um, as an excuse for not doing hard things. I think we got some introverts in the room. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because you won't. I, <laughs> I get that. Uh, some introverts in the room are like, listen, I don't love like developing new relationships for the other people. And that's fine. I'm an introvert, so I'm not going to. And what we miss out on is those depth of relationships. Some of you introverts, you're going to struggle with doing that, stepping outside and doing that hard thing of meeting somebody new and going to a deeper relationship. Um, others of us, I'm in this category, I will use my identity as an extrovert, uh, as a way of, uh, of living a comfortable life, a comfor- an easy life uh, that also shorts me in a unique way. For a little while, I thought actually that I was an introvert because like groups of, small groups of people, like six or so of people are just kind of like wearing on my batteries a little bit. And so I think like, I think I'm an introvert. I just want to like be alone to recharge. After trying that, it didn't work. What I realized throughout this process is I'm not, I'm not introverted. I'm just super extroverted. And this is going to come as a surprise to many of you. I know right? Where it's like, I don't need a group of like six or eight people. I need a group of like a hundred people, right? People, you know, ask me the question like, hey, do you like go home after church and like cash out and take a nap? I'm like, no, I go for a run. Like, let's go. Let's do this. Let's talk to some more people. I love this. And so the, the danger here for me and those of you extreme extroverts like me is that we can have a room full of a hundred or more people and we get to like talk to everybody just briefly and I can like just skip over the surface of relationships and that's easy. And I can never go into a depth of relationships because that's, that's uncomfortable. 
And so I have to ask myself the question, am I chasing comfort or doing something harder and pursuing happiness? These are different at times, and we have to realize just because it's comfortable doesn't mean it's good. Uh, we talk about identity, and we talk about some of the nastier forms. The danger of identity threatens this, uh, this, this comfort thing that comes along with this. Um, some, of the, some of the ways I think that we have even sought out comfort at the expense of our own safety and of our own well-being. I, I don't know how much of uh, addiction or substance abuse is, is really nestled underneath the surface at some level, just wanting to ease, dull, minimize, or hide the pain even just for a little while. It's comfortable. And we'll choose that. We'll choose that, that harming, that self-harming mechanism even at the expense of our future self. That's how badly we want this comfort. I think about some of the greatest achievements that I've had in my life. I think about some of the, the deepest relationships that I've had in my life. I think about some of the moments of most uh, spiritual or emotional growth that I've experienced in my life. And every single time I ask, did that come in a season of ease and comfort? Or did that come in a season of discomfort, even pain? And I start to think about every remarkable thing in my life has come from a season of difficulty. And so this is, I, I just, I want this for you in uh, spark note forms and just one line of thesis statement for us today is that you cannot fulfill your calling inside of your comfort zone. It's that you were made for more than just being comfortable. I love this quote about relationships, about how easy it is to, to fall short. Um, if we are not careful, our online lives can become pacifiers to dull our pain, relieve our boredom, and fill our emptiness. You were made for more. You cannot fulfill your calling inside of the comfort zone. Don't take my word for it. We're going to go to somebody who actually knows quite a bit about this world. We're going to go to the book in the Bible of James. This is actually Jesus' kid brother, James, who writes this like kind of open letter, James. The words are going to be on the screen. You can follow along in the Bible. We're going to pick it up in James chapter 1 and start off in the first part, the verse 1. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and he simply says, greetings, like, hello. What we're reading is simply a, an open letter. This is like the, I hate saying this out loud, but it's like the TikTok of the ancient world. When you just want to get a message as far and as wide as you possibly can, uh, he just, he'd write down the letter and he would publish it for the world to see. They'd send it off to a bunch of places and then they would make copies and then they would send it on and then they would make copies and then they would send it on. The idea was for as many people to see this as possible. Uh, I told you James is the kid brother of Jesus, like that Jesus. He grew up calling Jesus his older brother. There's a lot there, believe me. Uh, he's writing though uh, to, the, to the scattered among the nations. That's a particular word because he's talking to a particular group of people. He's talking to a group of people who know a thing or two about discomfort. They know a thing or two about pain and about trials. James is writing from the epicenter of the political life, of the religious life. He is writing from Jerusalem and he's sending this out and he's, he knows. 
He knows that it's hard out there. He knows that it's gotten remarkably difficult for those people who call themselves Jesus followers. At the time that he's writing this, about 30, 30 years after the resurrection, what has happened is that the Jesus movement is now a subset of the Jewish religion, and it's growing. People, Jewish people, who have identified the scriptures, all pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of these things, and it's taking root, and it's growing. There's a lot of people within the religious system, the Jewish system, who did not appreciate this new take on their ancient faith. And so they would exclude them. At the same time, the secular Roman government was looking at this and going, I'm sorry, you said you have a king and his name is Jesus. We're also not really encouraging of this new faith that's taking root and developing. If you were a Jesus follower in that first century, things were remarkably hard for you. There was a moment in time before and after. Acts chapter 7 is the stoning of Stephen. It says that uh, persecution and violence broke out against the Jesus followers and they had to run. Imagine what your life would be like if somebody found out that you went to church or you opened a Bible, you prayed to God. And immediately because of that conversation or that disclosure, your life was at risk. They had to flee Jerusalem where James is hanging out and still operating an underground church. They had, to, they had to flee home, pack up their families, sell their stuff, close down their business, not sell it, just run to a new place, a new town or a new village as far away as they could feasibly get. And when they got there, there was a clock like counting down. How long until people find out? And will they accept me? And there was a solid chance that when people found out the answer was no, they wouldn't accept it, and they had to do it all again. They had to sit their kids down and tell them again why they have to leave their stuff, why they have to leave their friends, why they have to move again. They know a thing about discomfort. They know a thing about pain. James is speaking into their life, and usually in these letters, what we see in other letters in the New Testament, we see these really, really long uh, openings. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, called from, and it's just that it kind of goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs. All of his qualifications, there's a thanksgiving section, and all my prayers for all of you, I give that. There's this long thing. No, no, James skips right to the point. He's like, we don't have a lot of time. Read this letter and read it quickly. He cuts through all of that and goes in verse 2 right to the imperatives. Listen to what he says. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy when you face these trials. When you face pain, when you face discomfort, consider it pure joy. You guys, that may be James talking. My aim for us today is a little bit lower than that. I, I'm not sure if you're going to walk away here and going automatic, pure joy. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. For this time right now, my aim, a reasonable aim, is simply uh, that you don't resist discomfort. Is that you just wonder what God might be doing, what God might be accomplishing throughout the pain, throughout discomfort that you're experiencing. I look at James and I'm going, has this guy lost his mind? Consider it pure joy when you face these trials. The thing about James, he used to be a really reasonable person, like a sensible kind of person. 
Uh, the gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us time and time again that when Jesus was making these claims that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, when he's making these claims, his brothers, James included, didn't believe him. In fact, throughout his whole life, his, his ministry, James, the kid brother of Jesus, didn't believe that Jesus was who he says he was. And as somebody with a couple of older brothers, guys, I kind of get it, right? Like, I, I'm the kind of guy, I want to, like, pin stuff on my older brothers, you know? Like, uh, who, left a, who left a toothpaste in the sink? And I'm 10, my older brother's 17, and I'm using, like, this sparkly toothpaste that's basically just sugar, right, to incentivizing uh, a habit that we're trying to develop. And it's, like, sparkly toothpaste in the sink, and I'm like, I think Jeremy did it, you know? And it's like, he's 17, I don't think there's, he's using your sparkly toothpaste. And I'm like, no, no, I'm standing behind it, he did it. James grows up with Jesus as his older brother. Mary's like, who left the dishes in the sink? And James is like, I think Jesus did it. Really, James? Jesus left his dishes in the sink and didn't put them away? Probably James didn't get away with too much, right? What would it take for James to believe that Jesus was the Son of God? James was a reasonable person throughout his whole life. At the end of his life, we realize the convictions that he ultimately came to. It was the Jewish Passover, a a big celebration in Jerusalem. The city swelled massively its normal size. It was a huge public skeptical. The the Jewish religious leaders invited James up to the the temple kind of porch, the tallest place available in the city of Jerusalem, tallest place in the largest city. And just invited him to to clarify for the crowds below. Who is this Jesus that everybody is talking about? Thinking that he is going, he's encouraging him to, to share his skepticism about who his older brother is. James takes this opportunity among thousands gathered several stories below and says, I'll tell you who Jesus is. And James declared, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is at this very moment sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come back on the clouds of heaven. He will come back. And it's at that moment that the leaders, the religious leaders, grab his shoulders and throw him several stories down below. He hits the ground. He does not die. He struggles to stand up, and he begins to pray, not against, but for the people gathered around who are now heaping stones on him to end this thing once and for all. He's praying not against, he's praying, Father, forgive them. He's praying for grace and mercy over the people who are killing him because of his beliefs. A launderer comes. There's a guy who's uh, got a club. He he beats mats and rugs to get the dust and debris out of them before washing. Comes over with his club and ends it for James once and for all. That is how he lost his life. How do you go from a skeptic of the Jesus movement because you're his kid brother to the place where you're willing to give your life not once but twice for what you believe? I think that he saw God move powerfully through a trial, through a divine discomfort. Let me, uh, let me show you what I mean. Let's break that verse down that we just read about, um, kind of verse by verse. Uh, so chapter 1, verse 2, uh, hear it again. Uh, consider it pure joy. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, not if ever, he goes, whenever you face trials of many kinds. You guys, this is the problem with chasing comfort. Uh, the problem with chasing comfort is it is always going to be fleeting. Like, 
if you've lived long enough, you understand this universal truth. It's not if ever, it's whenever. If you pin your happiness on an easy, comfortable life, it will someday let you down. The, the discomfort, the trial, the pain will come. Don't pin your hope and your happiness to that easy, comfortable life. Uh, for a few reasons. Number one, trials that we're going to learn today, this divine discomfort, trials are inevitable. And I just want to make a note on some of these trials that are so inevitable. Um, there's, there's a couple kinds. It's worth making a distinction on this. Some of the trials that you're going to face are self-inflicted. Some of the trials that we face are simply because we've embraced a life of procrastination. <laughs> Why isn't the project done on time? You had a year to work on it. I know, but I started it last night. But what's the deal? Why did I get such a bad grade? I worked all night on it, you know? Some of our pains, some of our trials are self-inflicted. And some of our trials are absolutely senseless. As a community, we're asking the people gathered uh, who call Encounter Church Home, we're asking you to pray for a little kiddo in our community, three years old. He's been having near constant seizures since he was born. And the medication after medication, and it stopped working, it isn't working. And so they scheduled brain surgery coming up in April. Why, God? It's absolutely senseless. I don't get it. James, the kid brother of Jesus, would have us believe two things about these trials, about all trials. Is that number one, God grieves with us. He goes into that valley with us. He knows pain. He knows loss. He grieves with us. And the second thing is that God is big enough and strong enough to do something, not just something about the pain, about the trial, about the discomfort. He is big enough not to do something just about it, but he's actually big enough to do something through it. Trials are inevitable. Trials also have a purpose. Trials have a purpose. Listen to this line. We heard it already. Hear it again in verse 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Uh, trials have a purpose. They, um, they, they produce something. They get some kind of a result. Listen, comfort, a life of ease, a life of comfort also produces something. Are you guys ready for a silly example? This is going to be ridiculous. I'm just going to own that up front. I get it, but I hope it sticks with you. <laughs> a little while ago, Grand Rapids was just placed on the map, you guys, like the international landscape, because Grand Rapids got, for the first time ever, a Cheesecake Factory. And we're very happy about that. Cheesecake Factory, if you're unaware, both of you, uh, Cheesecake Factory is like the ultimate place of comfort food, right? They've just got something for everybody. Everything's on the menu. It's a literal book. I mean, it's 100 pages long. They've got, but they've got it all. Cheesecake Factory is so amazing at doing comfort food uh, that you could actually, I could run 10 miles, come back to Cheesecake Factory, and in one meal, be calorie neutral for the entire day. Yeah, you're adding it up like, no, I mean, it's about right. Like a chicken uh, fettuccine Alfredo, and it's right, right there. Uh, yeah. 
You can have your entire week's worth of caloric intake at Cheesecake Factory in one meal, actually. What they do, they do comfort food like none other. But listen, you go to Cheesecake Factory like one time, and it's a celebration. It's good. It's awesome. Uh, if you go to Cheesecake Factory four times a week for five years, it's another conversation. Uh, Cheesecake Factory does comfort. Uh, a little while ago, uh, somebody introduced me to a certain form of exercise where you just lie down, and that's the part I was into. And then they said, now you get up real fast. It's called a burpee. <laughs> and you just kind of lay down, and then, oh, yeah, <laughs> you get up as fast as you can. That was the exact form of how a burpee is supposed to be done. Let the record reflect. <laughs> also, I'm going to try to pretend like I'm not fighting for my life over here with the microphone stretching my face. Um, you do 100 burpees in a day, probably all day. Uh, I don't think it's difficult. It's, uh, it's a life of discomfort. I, I don't think what you're going to experience on the end result of that is really much of a change at all. You do Cheesecake Factory one time, and it's no change. You do a burpee, a set of burpees, a hundred in one day, and there's almost no change whatsoever. You guys, if you maintain this uh, four to five times a week for five years long, uh, down the road on Cheesecake Factory that often, I mean, you're probably looking at diabetes and heart disease, right? If you maintain a hundred of these things, through uh, four to five times a week for the next five years or so, you're going to begin to look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's probably an exaggeration. But you get the idea. It's like the exact opposite effect. What we're learning throughout this, what James is learning throughout this, is that this discomfort, when it's a gift from God, and when it's embraced with the right posture, it's, it has a purpose behind it. And James, the thing that moved James from a, a skeptic of believing in this Jesus movement is like watching his older brother predict his death, watching him make these audacious claims like, tear this temple down in three days, I'm going to build it up again. It's like one of us going to New York City and going, take down Wall Street and, and, and the building and all the systems that go with it, and then in three days, I'm going to build it up again. And you're going like, who is this person? He's absolutely lost it. And what's moved and what's moved James from like distancing himself from those conversations to now embracing it is he watched. He watched as they nailed his older brother to a cross. They watched as, as they, he died and they put him in the grave exactly what his older brother Jesus said he was going to do. And he watched as Jesus rose from the dead and James is sitting on a beach with his resurrected older brother just like he said. And he's going, I think I get it now. And he becomes a believer, willing to give his life, not once, but twice. He becomes a kind of person who's willing to live not an easy life, not a comfortable life, a meaningful life. That's what I want for you. To choose not necessarily an easy life or a comfortable life, but a better life, a meaningful life. What James realized in those moments, even though I think he knew it was going to cost him everything, like it cost Jesus, I think Jesus knew, James knew that it is far better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. And I think James would have you believe the same thing, that no matter how much discomfort it comes with it, it is better to hurt with a purpose than to simply exist in a comfortable life without one. 
Because what God does, what God did for James and what God will do for those of you gathered, those of you putting your hope into him, what God is going to do is to take those obstacles and turn them into opportunities. What God is going to do is to take some of those setbacks and make them divine setups for the next great thing that he's going to do. What God is going to do is to take your misery and turn it into some of the areas of your most profound ministry. What God is going to do is to take your pain and shape it and form it to produce in you the depth of character resembling Jesus Christ himself. He's up to something. It is far better to hurt with a purpose than to exist without one. And you can probably look back at your life at those times and those seasons when you gained a new perspective, when you grew emotionally, when you grew spiritually, those times in your life when you achieved something profound and it did not come from a season of comfort and ease. It came from a season of hardship, of pain, and discomfort. These trials are inevitable. The trials have a purpose. And when you can come around and see it like James does, you'll also come around and see that these trials are themselves a gift. Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, the testing of your faith Some of you are like, come on, there's going to be a test on this? Nobody told me there's going to be a test on this. What do you mean by that? You die, you go to heaven, you go to the pearly gates, and Jesus is there, and he slips you a test. And you're like, what do I have to get to? Is this like pass-fail? Is this graded? Is there a scale? Am I shooting for a 70? Is that that good enough? There's a test on this. That's not the kind of test that he's talking about. I don't know where that idea comes from. A lot of us kind of believe like that's the thing. That's not a thing. That's not biblical. That's not our story. The testing of your faith, the word testing, it's a, uh, the word testing, the word refining, uh, uh, proving kind of comes out of it. I think what James has in mind, the testing of your faith, is that of a, of a silversmith. It's the job of a silversmith to take a, just a huge hunk of ore and to throw it in a pot and, and heat it up. Really, really hot with a lot, a lot of pressure. And the silversmith heats it up until, until it starts to melt down. And then some of the impurities start to, start to begin to float to the top. And then it's the job of the silversmith to cool it down, scrape away those impurities, and to heat it right back up again. And to start this process over and over. And it begins to separate and stratify. You can see the impurities come out on top again. The things that are not shiny, the things that are not silver. And so the silversmith scrapes across the top and polishes it up, tries it again, melts it down, heats it up. Again and again, this process is repeated. And the silversmith knows that this process, though painful, though hot with pressure, the silversmith knows that the process is not done until he looks over into the pot and he can see his reflection. What a beautiful picture, church, that is for the Christian life. Where you have a God in heaven who's refining your life, who's testing and proving your life. You have a God in heaven who's heating you up and you know what that feels like. It is not comfortable. It is not easy, but it's good. He's refining your life and he's heating it up. He's scraping away the impurities and it hurts when he scrapes away selfishness and it's painful when he scrapes away greed and we don't like it when he pulls away the lust. He takes all those impurities away one at a time and we don't maybe embrace it at the time that it's happening because we don't like how it feels. It's not easy. It's better than that. It's good. And we look forward to the day when God himself is the ultimate silversmith, looks over into the bowl of your life and he sees 
his own reflection. Well done, good and faithful servant, is what that sounds like. Trials are inevitable. They also have a purpose. And ultimately, when we meet God and we reflect the life and love of Jesus in the part of our life, trials can even be a gift. As we go out of this place, as you go out into your week, I'd like to share these words of John Shedd, who uh, was a great explorer, especially of the ocean in the beginning of the 19th century. He is also the namesake of the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. He uh, has this famous line where he said, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for. Profound words applied to our spiritual lives. Thinking about pain, thinking about comfort. A ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for. You were made for more than comfort and ease. Many of us don't know that the ships of our lives are built to withstand the storm, withstand the waves smashing up against the hull. We're built to withstand the wind raging in our sails. We think we need to be safe in the harbor. That is not what your life is for. You are built to withstand these. Jesus in you, the Spirit in you, encouraging you on, pushing you on, was made for more than this. He has gifted you with abilities. He has gifted you with a community to go around with you. He has gifted you with his very presence. He doesn't want you to be safe in a harbor. Sure, you were made for more than this. It's not what ships are for, just comfort and ease and safety. And that's not what the Christian life is for either. Ask him this week where it is that he's asking you to push away from the harbor. Maybe it's in a new relationship, maybe it's in a deepening relationship. Maybe it's a new identity. Maybe it's pushing away from an old identity. You were made for more than just comfort and ease. Let's stand up. Let's pray to the God who calls us to so much more. God, we're aware right now that there's a couple of people in the room, a a couple of groups of people in the room. Lord, there are those of us in the room who are going through such pain right now. As I share these words, they're not asking for more. They're asking for, they're asking for your comfort. Lord, for those already afflicted, I pray for your comfort. God, there's also those in the room who are far too comfortable, who have embraced a life of ease. God, for those of us in the room who are far too comfortable, I ask that you would afflict us. Afflict the comfortable, Lord, and comfort the afflicted the trials and the pain, the divine discomfort you have asked us to step into, it's with, it's not without purpose. Do something with it, Lord. Show us what you're doing with it. May our lives reflect your goodness. Church, right now, if you want to pray with somebody at all of our locations, we have somebody set up in the front. We would love to pray over the specific pain, divine discomfort that you're experiencing in your life. We want to honor God together as a community, doing life together in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus, we look forward to that day when you as our maker are going to lean over the pot of our lives and you see our very reflection. 
Not on that day. We'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That day is our homecoming. Jesus, in your resurrected power, we pray. Amen. Hey, church. It's our sincere prayer that this message was able to help you find new life in Christ. And if you did find it helpful, would you consider donating to help drive this ministry forward? And don't forget, there's no substitute for doing life together. So find a worship experience, join a small group or a serving team today. You can do all this at EncounterChurch.org.